1: Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. Over 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab, decent week of comments, not as many as last week. I'm not going to go an hour this time. I know some of you will be disappointed about that. But I also got some comments from um, Apple Podcast Reviews. A couple more than I got last week. So I will get to those most certainly. And I appreciate everybody who was able to leave your comments there. I also think that there is probably some interest in some coverage. Of the Alcaraz-Rusivori match in Madrid earlier this morning. Which I did watch in its entirety. So before I get to the comments. I'm going to talk a little bit about Alcaraz-Rusivori. The funny thing about this match. And... I think one of the reasons why it's so you know intriguing in hindsight is because Alcaraz could have lost this match. He was smoked in the first set. Rusevori won at six two, and in the second set, Alcaraz continued to look on his heels for the first half of the set. Rusevori had break points at two uh, three. Alcaraz serving at two three, multiple break points. And it ended up being a tight second set before Alcaraz really ran away with the third. I I think he won the third set. 6-1 if my memory serves. But obviously, what's so glaring about how this match played out in the result is that here you have a guy in Emil Roussevori, who I think at this point has built a reputation. One, as a good young player. I think he's 21 or 22 at this point, so... It's not like he's a teenager or anything, but a solid young player who has a really good chance to have an excellent career as potentially a top 30, if not a top 20 kind of player. I don't think that many people pin him as a top 10, a future top 10 guy. Uh, But if everything goes right, I think he even has that ability, right? So, yes, that is part of his reputation. But I think the second part of his reputation is that he is Yannick Sinner mini-me, that he is Yannick Sinner light. And of course, Sinner being one of the rare guys, one of the few guys who has a head-to-head against Carlos Alcaraz that at this point is not a negative one, 3-3. And at this point, one of the only two players who has defeated Carlos Alcaraz in 2023, Yannick Sinner, that is. Here comes his his mini-me version, his doppelganger, if you will who's up 6-2 and has Alcaraz on the ropes. So that immediately draws your attention. And I will say that a lot of things that Sinner uh, has done to bother Alcaraz was certainly a big factor in Rusevori's success early on in this match. The biggest thing, especially in the first set, was probably the aggressive return of serve. Rusevori completely burying not only Alcaraz's second serve, but uh, even his first serve to an extent, and hitting really uh, hard returns from an aggressive return position off of both wings, generally just deep up the middle, and rushing Alcaraz's plus one to the point where not only was Carlitos not having a chance to start the point with a, a good Aggressive and offensive plus one shot, but also was making a lot of errors on that first shot because he wasn't able to recover his footwork and his technique in time to, you know, coming out of your service motion. Carlitos just looked rushed. He just looked rushed. Especially on the forehand. It was an erratic forehand day through the first half of the match for Alcaraz and I think, again, a lot of that was just how little time he had to set up that ball. Um, The biggest revelation, I think, for Roussevori was the serving. I've never seen him serve so big. He was averaging over 125 miles per hour. He was hitting spots. He was getting an unbelievable amount of unreturned serves in the first set as well. I mean, he did not have to work very hard on his serve at all. And that's been an area where I've wanted to see more from Roussevori. One of my complaints about him, complaints is a weird term, but one of the areas where I think he's suffered is that he isn't uh, an offensive player, but an offensive player who's lacked the ability to play as much offense as he would want because he's not bringing enough heat off of that serve. This was the best I've ever seen him serve. Madrid conditions rewarded that quite a bit as well. So a couple of adjustments for Alcaraz to turn the match around. Uh, one is, I think he moved back. I, th- I thought he moved back on the return of serve. In fact, Hawkeye confirmed he very, very, very much did move back on the return of serve. He went to the back fence to return both first and second serves uh, to give himself more time and to get some returns in play. And the returns in play number skyrocketed. In the second and the third set, and I think just his his regulation rally position was also further back, and Rusevori's forehand speeds went way down. He, you know, wasn't able to continue to kind of execute the the pace of shot and the consistency that he did through the first set and a half. So between Rusevori's ball speed dropping, Alcaraz's court position. Going further back, that cocktail, that combination created an environment where suddenly Alcaraz just had a whole lot more time, and that time resulted in much cleaner tennis from Carlos Alcaraz, much more precise tennis from Alcaraz. And he was able to to turn defense to offense on a on a pre- pretty regular basis once he got his feet under him in this match. And the the errors, like he was just missing less because he was not quite as rushed. Also the energy in this match, I think the mental component. You know, at 2-3, I mentioned that Rusevori had a bunch of breakpoints in that game. And I think when you are an underdog in a tennis match and you have that underdog mentality, you come out of the gates hot and there's a feeling like, whoa, I'm, I'm playing great. Uh, this might be my day. This might be my day. I think this is my day. After that 2-3 game where Rusevori had a bunch of breakpoints, and I, I have to emphasize, Alcaraz was brilliant in these breakpoints saved. He was so good saving these breakpoints at 2-3. But after having all those chances and Alcaraz coming through and the crowd getting loud and Alcaraz pumping his fist, I think that was the moment where Rusevori started to ponder. And I don't think he's the most... I don't think he has that much mental swagger to him at this point. I think he did start to wonder at that point, is it my day? Maybe it's actually not my day. Because this whole time, it's felt like my day. That 2-3 game, if you watched it... There was a total shift in the energy and suddenly some there was some hesitation and some doubt uh creeping in to, to Rusevori. I think ultimately when you're when you're on even footing psychologically, that kind of thing maybe wouldn't affect you. But I think for Russivori, who just has that that underdog mentality almost in a bad way, it just felt like that 2 3 game kind of rocked him in a way where, I don't know, if he were his, uh, if he were actually Yannick Sinner and not many me Yannick Sinner, I don't think it would have been such a blow to the system to lose those break points in 2-3. Essentially, what I'm saying is at the f- the first time adversity came Emil Roussevori's way, his level dipped, which is not really what you want to see, but it's also a reality of the situation. And it wasn't all that surprising. So Alcaraz breaks serve at 3-all the very next game. And from that point on, it's kind of all Carlitos. Um, Alcaraz in the second set started to ask much more out of his first serve. In the first set, it wasn't all that aggressive. And he started to realize that he wasn't getting any plus one opportunity because Roussevori was so aggressive on the return. And... Carlito certainly upped the ante and was like, if you're going to be aggressive on the return, I should get some free points out of, out of this. And I think Alcaraz simply went for more on the first serve and it helped him out. He got a lot of free points in the second set. He didn't in the first set. That was uh, a really big key probably went a little bit bigger on the second serve although that's the adjustment i was really looking for after the second after the first set after the first set i was like all right alcaraz has one double fault and his second serve is getting demolished at that point you got to be like i'm going to go for more and if i double fault a couple times so be it because anything is better than rusevore absolutely you know crushing my second serve at like it's as big as a watermelon like he's seeing it as big as a watermelon which is what was happening so overall You know, Roussevori definitely showed off his his ball-striking talent. You know, crazy power ground strokes in the first set. Uh, Once again, we saw that if you take a lot of time away and you're able to hit big off of both wings and rush Alcaraz off the return, some good things can happen. But I also think that given the circumstances, it's it's a win that Alcaraz should be really, really proud of. You change conditions, Barcelona to Madrid, first match... This is typical of a Masters 1000, uh, maybe not so much anymore now that it's a 96-player draw, but certainly when it was a 56-player draw, you're not really going to have a chance to ease into the match. You come to Madrid, unorthodox conditions, altitude, big hitter, you know, someone who's able to take advantage of that altitude by actually playing really, really fast. And I imagine the ball was coming way quicker than anything he saw in Barcelona. It was just coming quicker. And he had to make that adjustment with a lot of pressure. This tournament means a lot to him. It's Madrid. And I thought Alcaraz did really good problem-solving in this, in this match. And I imagine that if you're Juan Carlos Ferrero, you are more proud of this Alcaraz win today than you were of blowing out Stefano Citipas in the Barcelona final. Because in the Barcelona final, everything worked. Everything was perfect. There was no adversity. But in this one, he really did have to mentally dig deep, stay the course, make some adjustments. He even tossed his racket, which I've, I don't think I've ever seen Alcaraz do that. He even tossed his racket in frustration. Uh, there was a lot of stress that he had to deal with and a lot of imperfect circumstances. Roussevori also already having a win under his belt, and Alcaraz is still able to get through with a victory. The other thing that I thought of, and this is the last point, somebody asked in, in a mailbag recently, they said, Gil, should should Alcaraz move back next time he plays center so that he simply has more time? And my response was, yeah, good idea. Good comment. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, he kind of did that in this match. That was an adjustment that he made. And it really helped his forehand start to perform better. Uh, and also probably gave Roussevori a little bit more to think about, you know, less of a target. Uh, It it felt like he just couldn't go deep middle and automatically rush Carlitos with ease. That it was going to need to take, you know, a little bit more to kind of uh, break the defenses. So I think that's a really good play for Alcaraz on clay. On grass, maybe it it won't be an option, you know, because it's so hard to defend on grass. But on clay with Alcaraz's physicality, yeah, he has all, everything he needs to take advantage of Clay court tennis from a deep court position, which I think has a lot of benefits in itself. But he has the weight of shot to still be dangerous from way behind the baseline, you know, to still generate offense and to kind of move up once the once the point is flipped in his favor. And he has the speed and the defensive skills to actually take advantage of that court positioning and have the willingness to defend a couple balls and the legs uh, to to work into points. So I thought that was the the great adjustment that he made, not only on the return position, but it starts with the return position and then it goes from there. Just playing from a little bit deeper to buy yourself some more time. I like it. But yeah, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be a solution at Wimbledon. So keep that in mind as well. All right, let's get to the comments. First one is from MDL Bull. Uh hi, Gil. I have a question regarding Coco Goff's forehand. Instead of changing her extreme grip, which I feel like it's too late to do, what are other changes or tweaks she can make to her forehand wing in order to make it more reliable and potentially a strength? All right. Interesting question. I uh, I always hesitate to coach technique. You know, I'm not trained to coach technique. And I, I, I really think that there are a bunch of people out there who are much better than me at this. So I always kind of bring that disclaimer before I talk about this thing. Uh, what strikes me with Goff's forehand, though, is definitely her take back. Besides for her grip, her take back. It is so far out of the pocket. And if you're watching on YouTube, you kind of see my arm position. And then you, you know, as soon as you see that, you kind of know what I'm talking about. You know, most forehands, most of the best forehands in the world, uh, the the elbow doesn't get all that far away from the body and neither does the racket head and everything is kind of contained in a more compact, uh, swing path. Or, you know, even if you track, if you track the elbow or if you track the racket head, usually, you know, nothing drifts all that far away, but for golf, the take back feels very, very wild, very, very kind of out of her almost center of gravity. And I think that does certain things to to the swing that that make it difficult for her to have success um in in timing the ball and in you know p- potentially even getting the footwork right. But also, you know, when you look at Goff's forehand, I think there is a, a considerable difference between its performance when she has plenty of time versus when she doesn't. And it's definitely a forehand that is susceptible to being rushed. And obviously, I think if the take back were a little bit more compact, she wouldn't be be rushed quite as easily. So that is what I see when I look at Goff's forehand. Uh, Besides the grip, which is extreme. I feel the take back is also extreme. It's way out there.
0: What if you could have a career?
1: Next one is from Donald Trump forever. Great. Uh, Thank you for the kind words at the top. Uh, I'm a Djokovic fan, but I think his backhand is no longer the best or even top three in the world. He seems to be second best in backhand rallies versus Medvedev and Zverev. His backhand also now struggles versus Nadal on clay, just like everyone else. My question is, do you agree with this analysis? And if so, what can Djokovic do to counteract this? I don't know that Djokovic's backhand performance has really gone downhill in any way. So I don't know that I fully agree with it. But I think that if you're observing that Novak is not so dominant against Medvedev and Zverev in the backhand and backhand exchange, I think what you're really seeing there is a decline in physicality. It's probably what you're really seeing. I mean, part of what makes Novak's backhand so great is, you know, Yes, it has moments of brilliant offensive creation, but that was never really what it was about. It's about the return. It's about the defense. It's about the the precision trading, you know, the, the depth on the trading, uh, the, pre- the precision on the backhand down the line that uh, puts so much pressure and puts opponents on the move. But ultimately, you know, it's still with Novak's baseline game, You know, it's a combination of, I I guess, death by a thousand paper cuts where the forehand and the backhand are both applying a a, a requisite amount of pressure where ultimately or eventually the player who's being attacked by Novak Djokovic is going to fold in some kind of way. I almost uh, sometimes I feel like Novak and and Murray were kind of the kings of the forced error in a way. But I do think what's been a change as Djokovic's career has progressed is probably a little bit more reliance on the forehand to be a weapon and less reliance on the backhand, you know, to go backhand to backhand with the righty and to have that physicality edge to therefore utilize that Brilliant consistency, that brilliant depth, that brilliant uh, precision that Djokovic has on the backhand. But I think more and more, you know, Zverev and Medvedev, they can go toe-to-toe in that cross court. And Djokovic at this point in his career, I don't think he wants to be like, yeah, I'm just going to outlast you here. That's just no longer a good plan for Djokovic. So maybe there have been instances where he's bailed out too too often with the backhand drop shot, or there have been instances where... He's been, been suffering physical, physically and actually been on the worse end of the backhand a backhand exchange. If you're going to look at a match like, I don't know, the 2021 US Open final against Medvedev, where Djokovic certainly didn't have a handle on the backhand-to-backhand. Backhand. But I don't think it's the backhand itself that's declined. I think it's, what are Djokovic's attributes and what are the way that he wins? And is the backhand no longer as big a part of that plan? And that might be true. Let us go to the next one. It is from Howell, AKA Donut McMuffin. You know, the usernames on, uh, on Apple podcasts are, uh, go many different directions. I'll tell you that many different directions. All right. Uh, uh, thanks again for everything you say here at the top. Uh, my question is not tennis related. Which major American sports pundits do you enjoy listening to and why? Parentheses, (Stephen A, Colin Cowherd, Skip Bayless, Nick Wright. Uh maybe tell us which ones you think uh you don't like as much if you're feeling spicy. All right. All right. Uh if you have no interest or don't know who any of these people are, uh then you can skip you can skip this part. Um Honestly, none of the pundits that you're listing in the parentheses I enjoy uh, at this point. Now, I think many of them are very, very talented, very, very good at what they do. Nick Wright, actually, recently, I've I've actually really appreciated some of the stuff that he has done, Uh, but I think all of them are talented, and I have a good amount of respect, a little bit less respect for Skip, who I I don't think is actually uh, believes a lot of the stuff that he's saying, and I think he's a provocateur and a hot take artist, even more so than the others. Uh, but all of them are talented. I respect what all of them do, but I, they are not my cup of tea anymore because I think that in the modern media landscape, the, the role and the position that they try to occupy, which is, oh, I am an expert on everything. I no longer think that that is the best option for a consumer, or at least it's no longer the option that I choose to focus on. Uh, for example I'll I'll bring this back to tennis. If Djokovic and okay, I'll I'll go in past tense. When Djokovic and Federer played at Wimbledon in 2019, that was probably big enough for, you know, first take or or Colin Coward. That might have been a big enough match to actually get some airtime on some of those American television uh, you know radio shows or or television programming debate shows uh where normally tennis would be ignored on that kind of program uh, but i mean when something that big happens it was probably debated and guess what if any of you watch that you're probably going to pull your hair out it's not going to be smart analysis or even smart discussion about tennis because or compared to you know what i can do because i'm i am a a specialist i occupy a niche and they don't well, that is true for baseball, basketball, hockey, football, boxing, MMA. Those guys, Stephen A. Coward, Skip Nick Wright, they are attempting to be an expert at everything, and it's just not realistic. So I choose to go to more uh, niche programming, you know, for, for my information. So like right now, NBA playoffs, I enjoy the work of Ryan Rossillo on the Ringer Podcast Network, Bill Simmons as well, uh, who brings on a lot of great guests. I mean, what Simmons does on his podcast, he doesn't, I mean, look, he has his opinions, but he brings on guys like Benjamin Solak for football or, uh, you know, uh, Rosillo brings on uh, someone like, uh, man, I'm blanking on the guy, like Trent Dilfer for football, right? Like they're bringing on experts and, you know, they are, I think, basketball, like Russillo watches as much basketball as I watch tennis. All right. That's just an example. I mean, I could go on and on, um, and talk about other things that I consume, but I think you get the point. Um, that's kind of my opinion on the major American sports pundits, but you know, Nick Wright, Stephen A. Cowherd, all excellent at what they do. Man, they are they are talented, and I at a time looked up to them and learned a lot from them, and at a time kind of wanted to be them actually. All right, next one is from Miss Coach Taylor. Gil, what are the best ten? What are the ten best forehand? Ten best backhands? Ten best movement guys in the top fifty? All right, uh, I would recommend first of all uh, watch the Hulk video. Watch the Hulk video or I did post it on podcast platform. So even if you're uh, if you're a listener, uh, listen to the Hulk podcast because I get these things all the time. And honestly, I don't I don't have these things at the, uh, you know, off the top of my head. But uh, that's an example of where I, you know, I did put a lot of thought into it and you'll get some of the answers to these questions in a way that I think is a little bit better than simply ranking Uh, the guys. But what I will do is I'll read what you have and I'll give you my opinion on it. So you have for forehand one Rafa, two Stefanos, three Joker, four Rude, five Alcaraz, six Rublev, seven Mateo, eight Nori, nine Sinner, 10 FAA. Well, I think you did a pretty good job here. I would say my most glaring disagreement is Mateo is too low. Mateo has, I think, a better forehand than probably Alcaraz, uh, Rude. Well, look, you know, his mobility kind of gets in the way here. So now I'm thinking, like, are we talking also about when you have to, like, run into your forehand corner and hit one? Because then, obviously, Mateo suffers a little bit. But... If we're talking about offensive forehands, yeah. I mean, I think he's I think he's better than everyone you have here except maybe Rafa and Stefanos. Berrettini's that good. Uh, it's just... I think once you incorporate some of the other parts of hitting a forehand, especially hitting a forehand on the run, then I could understand why you get to Matteo at number seven. Uh, let me pull up the rankings real quick just because uh, sometimes that gives me a good way just to... Just to scan a little bit and see if we're missing anybody. Um, did you snub Fritz? Yeah, I think you snubbed Fritz. I think Fritz's forehand is a little bit better than Nori's forehand. You know, you have Nori on here. Uh, and I think Fritz's forehand is definitely better than FAA's forehand as well. I'm much more consistent. So yeah, I think Taylor should be on there. Um, Let's see. Anything else? I don't think so. Uh. Look how many of the best forehands in the world are the best players in the world. Notice that? I mean, it's pretty pretty good. If there's one player who has a top 10 forehand in the world who maybe should be on here, but whose play doesn't quite allow him to meet, maybe be mentioned in these conversations as much, some of you probably know who I'm going to say. It's Francisco Surrendolo. All right, let's look at your backhands list. For backhands, you have... Joker, Zverev, Daniil, Kyrgios, Sinner, Rafa, Runa, Fritz, Herkac, and Runa again. Runa twice! How about that? By the way, speaking of Runa, last match right now in Madrid. It's 6-all in the third set tiebreak. Runa against Bublik. This is intense stuff. I'm literally watching at 6-all, great forehand down the line by Runa. And he's going to have, I, I think, what is his, at least his second match point. This is very intense. I feel like Cam Williams here. Live commentary. Uh, okay. This is a good list of backhands. I personally think that Daniil's is, is the best in the world. I've always kind of, you know, I've always had kind of tied with Djokovic. Novak is a little bit better at creating offense with it but I definitely think it's better than Zverev's because it's trickier than Zverev's. But it's close. You know, I I don't, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say it's way off, but for me, with the flat delivery, I think it's more consistent than Zverev's. I think it's harder to attack than Zverev's. And I, I do think it has that that trickiness factor with the with the low bounce and just the flat delivery. So, uh, Kuros is is uh, an interesting placement. I don't think a lot of people would have him up there, but you know, I I won't really argue with it. I like how high you have Rafa. Uh, there's actually a, a mailbag question later about that. I like how high you have Runa. Uh, I do think Herkach deserves to be there. So yeah, I mean, I think I think you really know your stuff, honestly. I think this is uh this is very good. Now you don't have Alcaraz there. I'm fine with that right now. I could see an argument that Alcaraz should be there, but I'm totally fine with him not being there, honestly. Uh, you know, Chorich isn't there. I can understand that, but he would warrant some consideration, certainly. Corda uh, isn't there. Maybe Corda should be there, but again, like, let me go back to the end of your list. You have Hercoc, you have... Well, you know, you have double Runa, so maybe Korda should be in that number 10 spot. In fact, I think he should. I'd put him there. All right. Uh, and then you want movement list. I'm not going to do a movement list, but uh, good one. Okay, another one from Apple Podcasts. Uh, so for the review part, oh, I'm not going to read that part, but I appreciate it. You're the best. Oh, this one, another straight shingles 27. Really? You named yourself after like a, I don't know what to call it, a, a disease? Or maybe maybe Shingles is also a last name. It might also be a last name, but it's also a disease. So, I mean, I shouldn't be talking. My last name's gross. So if it is your last name, uh, don't take offense. All right. Uh, wow. It's 9-8. Nine, 9-8 eight, nine, eight in the tiebreak, Faruna. Okay. As for my mailbag question, I guess it's more of a hot take that I'm wondering if you agree with. Nadal's backhand is top 10 of all time, at least among two-handers. And when he's healthy, it's easily top five in the current game. I think it's criminally underrated and very rarely breaks down. Plus, he hits the cross-court backhand really hard when he wants to. You're right. uh, He does. And I know exactly the backhand you're talking about with the cross-court backhand. Nine all! Service winner Bublik. Um, Look, here's the thing about Rafa's backhand or or here's the thing about having these conversations overall a lot to do with it is how big a part of a shot is to your success how integral is a shot some people pronounce that word integral I go integral how is how how important is it how crucial is it to your success or if you are going to make a pie chart how big a slice of pie is that particular shot so you know for Rafa The forehand, when it comes to the baseline game, is asked to do so much more than what the backhand is asked to do that it's hard to say, especially when Rafa was younger and he really didn't always, you know, try to do all that much with the backhand offensively. It's hard to know, well, you know, how do we assess that shot? Uh, But look, you're right about this. It is so reliable. When Nadal has his low points, it is very rarely the reason. You know, it's usually the forehand that's dipped. It's, you know, the backhand is is rock solid. I think the variety on the backhand is very underrated. I think he has a slice that works really well. Aesthetically, it's not the most pleasing slice to look at, but I think it works really well. And I think he mixes his his heights and his spins and his directions unbelievably well on the backhand side. It is, as we know, very, very consistent. Um, But ultimately... I do think it's hard to put it up there, you know, top 10 of all time. I I think it might be in there, but I also think that if I really went through it, I, I might be able to come up with 10 backhands or, you know, a Steve Flink might be able to come up with 10 backhands that are better. And and just as importantly, 10 backhands that are just more important to winning uh, because Nadal's backhand has never really been in the, you know, among the, the items of his game that have been uh, most leaned on and that that hurts it in this kind of conversation but is it is it criminally underrated you know i I can't really disagree with you there it is a gem of a backhand it is such a good backhand it really is it's an interesting thing to think about runa wins big serve uh double faulted there at nine all so you know it kind of goes back to this interesting thing i mean Madrid, I believe the roof is even close. So it's indoor tennis. It should be easier to hit, you know, two first serves. But look, I just don't know if someone someone's got to run the numbers and the analytics on on Bublik's second serve. But I don't know if he finds the balance, if he gets it, you know, right. Now, obviously he was really close to winning that match, which is a good sign for Bublik, but to me, it's it's still kind of a tough pill to swallow because oftentimes with Bublick when he misses his first serve, you don't really trust him to make the second serve. You don't. And I don't know if the payoff is there because uh, ultimately, you know, that's a tight tie break. And what does it come down to? Runa doesn't need to do anything to get that crucial mini break at 9-all. Uh, then he gets the service winner at 10-9 to win the match. I don't know. Let's see, uh, let's see what the stats were. Let's see how... What the second serve stats were for uh, for Bublik? Uh, he double faulted nine times in the match. You know, could be worse for a three set match for Bublik. Could be worse, uh, but second serve points won. He was at forty three percent. You know, Runa was at fifty two percent. All right, look, forty three percent isn't good. At all, really, but then, you know, you look at Bublik's baseline game against Runa's baseline game, you could understand why Bublik might struggle to win second serve points. At the same time, I kind of think it proves my point uh, that, I mean, let's see what he averaged on second serve speed. He averaged, oh, this is broken. Wow. The the radar gun must be broken because it says that he's averaging 82 miles per hour on the first and 68 miles per hour on the second. That is 100% wrong. Right? Can't be right. So, all right. That's that. Enough. Enough on Bublik. Let's go to the next comment. The next comment is from Hank. Hank J. All right. Thanks for the kind words there. I have a question about some things Riley Opelka has been posting on his Instagram in regards to ATP doubles. I think he posted, he posted saying that doubles should be removed from the ATP, posting about low attendance, lots of walkovers from singles players, no attention, etc. I love doubles, and I think it will always have a place in tennis because of how many people will play doubles recreationally, and it is just as much a part of the sport as singles. But that doesn't translate to the TV at all. What do you make of Opelka's comments? And is there more that can be done to help professional doubles? Hmm. Okay. Um, I kind of agree with what you're saying, first of all, about the prominence of doubles to the sport of tennis recreationally and how keeping that in mind, it would feel like a hole. It would feel like a gaping hole if professional doubles didn't exist on tour it just it would feel like something there would be incompleteness like something's missing because at the end of the day when you boil it down to kind of what we do here uh you take away all of the fans the money the sponsors the television product the ticket sales all of the ways that this is i don't know a capitalistic entity if you take that all away What we're doing is we're taking a game that everybody around the world plays and creating uh, an arena where the best in the world can compete. And to just not have doubles be a part of it wouldn't feel right at all. So, I almost think it's intrinsically a part of tennis. I also think that it is a big part of the live tennis experience. Despite doubles not bringing a lot to the table in terms of ticket sales and television, I do feel that if you walk around the grounds, opening week of a major, uh, even the first week of a Masters 1000 tournament, you will see countless people who are very much enjoying the ability Many of these people are are probably people who play a lot of doubles themselves. They're very much enjoying the chance to watch professional doubles up close on outer courts. So, And, and also part of the uniqueness of going to a live tennis event and, and why I tell people in my personal life, I don't care if you like tennis. If you don't like tennis, you should go to the U.S. Open. You should go to your local tournament, whatever that tournament is, is because this a la carte experience of being able to go around And to see, you know, whatever match you may want to see at any given moment. And oftentimes uh, rub shoulders with these athletes is completely unique to tennis. You will not find it in another sport, period. And the volume is a part of that. The volume, meaning the number of matches that a tennis tournament puts on. Part of that volume is doubles. Okay, it's a really long way of saying... Doubles is a big part of the live experience, in my opinion.
2: Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers.
1: Uh, The second part of this question is, you know, what can be done to help professional doubles? Well, first of all, I want to go in one direction that's actually topical. The topical direction is, I wonder if the lengthening of these Masters 1000 tournaments will indeed improve the participation by singles players in doubles. It's a phenomenon that we have seen at Indian Wells and Miami. Miami, a little bit less so. Indian Wells, partially because, uh, think about it. If you are a European player and you lose early at Indian Wells, what are you doing for a, a week and a half? Like, seriously, it comes down to that. Like, What are you doing with your time? That's why a lot of players go play the Phoenix Challenger. Because... If you're not doing that, you are kind of twiddling your thumbs in the United States. You're not going to go fly home back to Europe if you live in Monte Carlo like half the tour. Uh, You're not going to go fly back to Europe. So what are you doing? And that's why they play doubles. Part of the reason why they play doubles. Well, is that going to be true for uh, more players as the format of these Masters 1000s are expanded and lengthened? I do think we might see a little bit more doubles participation. Uh, participation by the singles players. And uh, you still do have that in the women's game already. You know, Goff and Pagula are big draws. Um, I don't think that the men's side has an equivalent of that. You know, Krejcikova, Yaková. Uh, I don't think they're, you know, really a huge draw, but uh, even Kudermatova and and Elise Mertens, there are a lot of more prominent singles players that have been participating in the doubles. But really, Goffin and Pakula are the only needle movers. They're really the only needle movers in doubles right now. Um, that that play consistently. You know, ultimately, it is a chicken versus the egg thing. I I don't think doubles is a is a bad product. I do think that if you put it on TV more, if you put it on center court more. Uh, the reaction would be pretty good for the most part, as long as you have some names. And y- you have to just do some star building. And I think star building will mostly... You know, it's going to be hard to star build from, from doubles alone. It will be. So, I don't have all the answers here. Um, but that's kind of my assessment of it. Uh, I don't know if I'm I'm missing any aspects, if there are any angles that I haven't attacked here but I think I'm kind of out of things to say. So I'm going to move on. Let's track it. Something to track. Next one is from The Pope. Again, appreciate the uh, super positive words there at the top. Thank you. A question. Could you please share with us what you know about string tension used by the pros? Is it true that Manorino has his racket strung somewhere in the mid-20s? Yeah, that is true. I think Manorino is, uh, I think he's been uh, stringing his racket at like 27, 28 pounds, uh, which is, yeah, uh, absolutely mind-boggling. So I saw this question. I hit up my friend, Nate Walrath, who uh, works for uh, Tennis Point. Tennis Point is a a uh, tennis online retailer, clothes, rackets, strings, all that uh, Nate was at Cincinnati, I believe, was the tournament, or maybe maybe Washington, D.C. He was at a tournament, and he was out back by where the stringers were. And there was a whiteboard. I'm sorry, it was Atlanta. Yes, it was Atlanta. He was by where the stringers were, and there was a, a whiteboard with all the players, their rackets, their strings, and their tension. The stringer had that up on a whiteboard. And Nate took a a photo. Uh, He posted it on social media. I asked him to send it to me, so he did. And uh, I'll put it up here on the screen right now, which you can enjoy if you're watching on YouTube. But the main takeaway here is how many different ways there are to skin the cat. I hate that saying. I'm not going to use that. It's such a gross saying. Uh, Okay, Uh, let's let's think of a new analogy. Uh, How many ways there are to... Cut the mustard. I don't know. I don't have anything else. Um, Look, you have John Isner at the lightest, 35 pounds. You have John Millman at the heaviest, 66 pounds. Uh, If I were to kind of just scan and say, like, what's the average? I mean, most of the tour at this point is going with full polyester string bed and stringing between... Eh, 45 pounds and 55 pounds. I think that's fair to say. You have some... You know, you have a good amount of players using uh, hybrid as well. But a lot of full polys, a lot of guys between 45 and 55. But, you know, there's by no means like the best setup, the ultimate setup, because otherwise uh, you'd see more players doing the same thing. You also see an abundance of... A couple of strings, you know, Luxalon, Alu Power, lots of uh, RPM, tons of RPM, lots of uh VS versus. I, I don't I'm not actually all that familiar with that one. Four G, I've seen a couple times. Yeah. I use you wanna know my, my setup? I use a Babylon Pure Strike. I use a full bed of Luxalon Alu Power. And I string between usually 48 and 50. All right. Let's go to the YouTube comments. I think I I am going to go an hour. How about that? I didn't think I would. All right. This one's from Marco B. Thoughts on Nadal's seating at the French Open if he does decide to play. At the moment, he is 14 and could potentially drop out of the top 16 if he doesn't play Rome. And if those... And if those behind him have good results at Madrid slash Rome, this could mean third round meetings with Djokovic or Alcaraz come the French open because of this. Do you think that there should be a seeding formula at the French like there is at Wimbledon where previous results on clay and the French are weighted heavily uh, or more heavily on seedings? Also wanted to get your position on moving back to a 16 seed system. Good question. No, I would be against Roland Garros implementing something that Wimbledon had. Remember, they had it. They got rid of it. I'm using the past tense here. But for Wimbledon, you know, I believe a big part of the logic for why the uh, All-England Club believed that that special seating system was necessary was because such a small portion of a player's ranking had to do with their results on grass. That was a big part of the logic, was that, look... You know, if you're only going to let us have, if you're basically going to have no grass court season, and there was a time where I think the grass court season was even less so than what it is now. So if you're basically going to have no grass court season, then you need to give us a little bit of leeway here to make the seedings a little bit more accurate towards what grass court tennis would be. But when we're talking about clay and I mean, look. Is, is it as influential on rankings as as hardcore? No, it's not. But it's still, there's quite a bit of influence in, in a given player's ranking based on how well they played on clay. And I think when in doubt in the sport of tennis, we go with objectivity. You know, as much kind of, and I know that there was a formula there, but still the, the formula itself, the algorithm itself, has some subjectivity to it. And I think the more we can kind of simplify and systemize, the better we are in tennis for the most part. It just makes everybody's life easier. So I, I just don't itch at all for, you know, the French Open to adjust the seating. And you know, when it comes to Nadal dropping out of the top sixteen, you know, it's just it's a reflection on his results in the past uh fifty two weeks. That's what it is. And that's okay. I think that's okay. Uh, What would be your position on moving back to a 16 seed system? I just think it's better. I think it's better for the fans. It's more entertaining. You get better first, second, third round matchups. And I think if you're a top 16 seed, particularly if, if you're a favorite to win the tournament, then there should be nobody outside of the top 16 that should rob you of your ability to go deep. So, I much prefer 16 seeds over 32. I don't feel the need to elaborate on that uh, further than I just did. I just think it's more entertaining. And I want a tournament to carry from start to finish. And what is there? Is there some kind of concern that if there were a 16 seed system that we would get so many upsets early on that, that at the end we would get underwhelming semifinals and finals and quarterfinals? Is that the logic? I mean, I gravely disagree with that. I don't think that's accurate. So, you know, I don't really get it. I understand that the players in power probably like that a lot. But I don't think it does anything for the fans. Next one is from Zach Miles. Hi, Gil. With Emma Raducanu dropping out of Madrid and her recent string of injuries... What is your take on her future? There seems to be a lot of I think you stumped me on this word. Schadenfraud? Uh charade? That's not how to spell charade, is it? No. I don't think so. But now that I think about it, if I had to spell charade, I'm not I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I would spell it. Anyway, there seems to be a lot of something type hate on her would also love to get your views on where this hate comes from calling her a one-hit wonder a fluke too fragile to manage the physical demands of the tour yet when she won the u.s open people said she was the real deal and even compared her to roger fetter do you think the reality is Uh oh i cut off the question i'm sorry uh basically what do you think the reality is or here i'm gonna i'm gonna pull up the question uh, do you think the reality is somewhere in between these two extreme positions yeah probably I mean when in doubt with the internet the answer is in the middle when in doubt but yeah definitely look anybody who was saying you know she's gonna she's gonna tear it up after the. US open run you know they don't understand they don't understand sample size and like, I'm not gonna have some kind of I told you so attitude about it, like I knew exactly how things were gonna go after the US Open. I didn't. Look, the reality is of the US Open run, that is one of the that is one of the wildest things that has ever happened in the history of our sport and therefore in the history of sports. It is one of the wildest things that's ever happened. So to know exactly what that means in the moment, to have takeaways. To be able to project the future based off one of the wildest things that's ever happened in history is pretty unrealistic. Uh, Where does the hate come from? The hate comes from her being rich and famous. That's where the hate comes from. She got rich and famous. And she continues to get a lot of attention. She continues to be treated like the celebrity that she now is. And I think that is where inter- internet folk uh, can resent her. That's the only thing that I can think of, because you know we all know she didn't do anything to anybody. She didn't kill your puppy. She didn't. She didn't rob your house. She didn't spit in your soup. So all these people, you know giving her vitriol in, in comments, which I've seen as well. I've seen it on Instagram. I've seen it on Twitter. You know, under any Kanu has withdrawn post comes a lot of venom. Where does that come from? My, my best assessment, jealousy. She got rich and famous. People don't like that because there's a perception that it's undeserved, but is it, is it really undeserved? Or is it someone who pulled off one of the most miraculous things in the history of sports, and we're gonna act like it's a mystery why uh, she now has a uh, sponsorship with man? uh, Take your pick. I mean, what what Raducanu has like an unbelievable portfolio now of uh, brand ambassadorship. I don't know, British Airways. Let's see. Is there like I'm gonna pull up her Wikipedia? What is she endorsements? Here we go. I knew that there would be a uh a section for this. Let's see. Uh okay, Tiffany and Co., Dior, British Airways, Evian, Porsche. So yeah, you know, lots of good lots of good checks coming in the mail for Radu in the endorsement uh category. Look, she has a super interesting background. Her look is marketable. I mean, yeah, she's going to become a star when she wins the US Open without dropping a set as a teenager outside of the top 100 qualifier. Yeah, you're going to become rich and famous. You're from the UK. You're from a huge market. Let's not act like that doesn't have something to do with it. You're going to become rich and famous. Deal with it. Uh, but you know, people on the internet get mad when people get rich and famous. I think that's kind of the trend. All right. That's that. Let's see. Do I do a couple more? I got to do two more. I got to do two more because I got to do the top liked comment on YouTube and I'll do this one first. This one is from Golland. Can you explain or describe the decision-making process of how ATP players choose tournaments? I guess this question could be about WTA players as well. For example, why do some choose Munich and others Barcelona and others Banja Or early on, why do some choose the Golden Swing and others Europe? Uh, do they chase specific surfaces, look to avoid certain players, want to stay close to their home country? Uh, I feel like I would go wherever I had the best chance to get sunshine and warmth, but I'd wager there is more to the decision-making tactics than just nice weather. Yeah, you left something out here. You left something out here. If you're a top player, you're getting appearance fees. Tournament directors are throwing money at you so that you can play their event. So that's a big deal. That's a big part of it. Not so much for the lower ranked players. They're not getting appearance fees. But the top guys are going to be accepting you know, big time cash. To play these tournaments. Other than that. I would say. It's where can you win. Where can you win. Uh, and. What makes sense for travel. Travel schedule. So you want to avoid jet lag. You want to avoid. You know transcontinental travel. You want to make it as easy on yourself as possible. From that standpoint. And, and when it comes to, well, where can you win? Let me be a little bit more specific on that. That's really where surface comes into play more, more than anything. Uh, because at the end of the day, you got to maintain your ranking. You have to maintain your ranking. Your ranking is your livelihood on tour. That is what gets you into the majors. That is what gets you into the masters. So as long as you're maintaining your ranking, you're in good shape. And to, to do that, you got to win. So if you look at the players who play the Golden Swing, you know, those are the players who who are going to probably not win in Rotterdam, but they're probably going to be able to win in Rio. It, that's the difference. All right, last one. It is from Jared. This is this was the top-liked li- uh, top comment. Hey Gil, give me your top five players on tour that are currently underachieving based on their talent level and why you choose them. Well, I'm going to ignore the Billie Jean King quote. Which is hard work is talent. Great quote by BJK. Uh, but I guess when you ask this question, you know, you're basically saying, well, who are the players who have the uh, both physical and technical, you know, genetic capabilities that are that are extraordinary, and their results are a lot more ordinary? Okay. Names that come to mind, Alexander Bublik, you know, just a guy who I think can be locked, you know, more locked in mentally and just give a little bit more effort. Dennis Shapovalov, someone who's really struggled to improve on his weaknesses, which has just, you know, made it so that his unbelievable athleticism and his phenomenal strengths on the tennis court have not been showcased at the highest level. At all times. So, you know, and Shapovalov also emotionally and his ability to manage a match has also been a weak point. Uh, Alejandro davidovich Fakina to this point, I, I do think deserves to be in this conversation. Not someone who I think is is usually brought up in this conversation, but it is someone to me who I believe should be doing better. Uh, that said, I, I, I think maybe we're starting to see some turnaround for him. But I think physically and... With his racket talent, you know, the, and the natural power, I, I feel like the sky's the limit for him, and he hasn't been able to really fulfill that yet. Who else? In a way, you know, a player who who has frustrated me—I'm not going to lie—is Hubert Hurkacz, another guy who. And yeah, again, I don't think he would he would come up on on most of these guys' list, but. You know, when there is one thing that is so glaring that is holding you back and you're just not able to improve it, you know, year after year after year, it just doesn't improve at all. Um, that, to me, has been frustrating as someone who, who you know, just roots for him to continue to progress. That's been frustrating for me. And then uh, the last guy I actually think would be Alexander Zverev. You know, look, such he's accomplished so much. He's accomplished more than 99% of players will ever be able to accomplish. But if you're going to tell me that his nerve management, his you know, rocky situations off the court, which sometimes have seemingly affected his tennis, sometimes seemingly not, but at times it seemed to bother him, uh, honestly, the stuff with his coaches and his agent seemed to have always bothered him a lot more than the issues that he's had in his romantic relationships. You know, because, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, not to mention, you know, the second serve, which there haven't been any adjustments on. You know, I just, I don't, it just seems like he hasn't really tried very hard to fix it. All those things considered, it does feel like Zverev has left some meat on the bone, some untapped potential. Yeah. I mean, it's especially in the nerve management department because he's a lot worse than his contemporaries in that area. There's a clear difference between how he's been able to play when there's no pressure versus how he's been able to play when there's pressure. So, all right, I gave you five guys. Always a question that I feel slightly bad answering, but I understand why there's interest in getting my take on that. All right, everybody. Um... I am actually uh, going to be tr- away this weekend, so expect Monday match analysis to drop uh, a little bit later than usual uh, this week. And there's not going to be any post-match analysis in the next couple days. Just giving you the heads up. But as Madrid rolls on, um, I will uh, get some some post-match stuff in during the week. Hope you uh, next week. That is. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.